Tonight's lecture, presented by Dr. Ani Patel of the Neurosciences Institute, will address music, language, rhythm, and the brain. And it's a real pleasure for me to be able to introduce Ani. He's a colleague of mine at the Neurosciences Institute, where he is the Esther J. Burnham Fellow, uh, supported uh, by one of San Diego's uh, great music supporters and philanthropists, Esther Burnham, and uh, which is something that uh, is particularly important to us at the Neurosciences Institute, where in addition to wanting to understand how the brain works, we also have a concert hall and a concert series, uh, which uh, is made available to nonprofit groups in the San Diego area. So we try to integrate across these various different lines that um, are sometimes not easily crossed, but Ani crosses them very easily. Um, he's not only a pioneer in this field, he's actually one of the originators of this field. And you'll see that he's a young man, which means that this is a field that hasn't been around all that long. But it was, in fact, during the time that he was growing up uh, as a high school student in Delaware, having already studied music himself, that he began to be interested in the whole question of how does the brain respond to and, 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 and process to music. Uh, he is a clarinetist and a classical guitarist himself. But when he started, but he, and, he, and when he attended college at the University of Virginia, he really began to gel this interest, uh, but, but was interested in biology as well. Went to graduate school then at Harvard University, where he began working with the great uh, biologist Edward O. Wilson, who's best known for his work on social ants, not necessarily the most musical of species, <laughs> but Ani's interests were wide. And as he tells it, he was off doing field work in northern Australia uh, for a year, um, making great progress in understanding social organization and uh, communication in meat ants, as they're known, when he realized that if he was going to continue along that line, he was really going to have to devote himself to it, and he would really have to put music on the back burner for a long time. So his passion got the better of him. He wrote to his advisor, Dr. Wilson, and said, I have a quandary here, what shall I do? And apparently Dr. Wilson supported him to come back and to try to forge his way into this new field, which he did at Harvard, and then came to the Neurosciences Institute where he has continued this work, initially as a postdoctoral fellow, and now, as I said, as the Esther Burnham Fellow, where he has made great progress in understanding how the brain responds to music and how understanding music can tell us about how the brain works itself. Um, he is already a leader in his field, having published papers in prestigious scientific journals and being a member of the executive committee of the Society for Music Perception and Cognition. And without any further ado, I will turn the program over to Dr. Patel. Thank you very much. I want to thank the organizers of this series for inviting me here. It's a real pleasure in the Natural History Museum. It's wonderful to be here. What a great venue. Well, tonight we're talking about music and the brain. So I'll start by talking a bit about music. Then I'll talk briefly about the components of music in the brain. Then for the body of the talk, I will discuss the two sides of music neuroscience. What music can teach us about the brain and what, and what the brain science in return, can teach us about music. Interest in music in the mind is as, in, is as ancient as philosophy itself. Plato was uh, marveled at the power of music over human character and human emotions. In fact, he was quite concerned 
about the way music could either degrade or elevate the minds of young people. So you can see in some sense, nothing has changed. <laughs> he said, rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul. Well, yes, that's true. And he said this in 400 BC. But what has changed since then is that just in the last few years, brain science has started to seriously investigate music. And this young science is confirming music's power over us. For example, some colleagues in Montreal decided to do a study to investigate what happens in the brain when people get chills to music. This is intense emotional responses that often manifest themselves as shivers, tingling of the spine. Has anybody here had this? Okay, it's not uncommon. And uh, they specifically looked at chills to instrumental music. So this wasn't due to any associations that people had with lyrics. It was just sounds of music. And they looked... They took advantage of the fact that people often know quite well what music gives them chills. They know the piece, sometimes the very passage in the piece. And so they had people bring in their own self-selected CDs, and they scanned their brains while they were having these experiences listening to music. They found a number of brain areas activated, but two were particularly interesting. These were deep and ancient centers in the brain that are part of the brain's reward circuitry. They're shown in this uh, upper panels in the MRI scans, but more clearly and schematically in the lower slide, where you can see two little things labeled VTA and N accumbens. That's the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. These are key centers in the brain's reward circuit. They provide pleasurable uh, rewards to the brain using the neurotransmitter dopamine. But they usually do that in response to biologically important behaviors, such as eating or reproducing. So somehow, listening to instrumental music, a very abstract activity, is accessing the same brain structures as our behaviors important for our physical survival and our reproduction. Well, while the emotional power of music is an important and fascinating area for neuroscience, What's really driving music neuroscience forward today is the fact that music engages so many fundamental brain functions, such as, in addition to emotion, we have memory, learning and plasticity, attention, motor control, pattern perception, imagery, and the list goes on and on. Another thing that's driving neuroscientific research interest, uh, neuroscientific interest in music is the growing realization that music, no less than language, is a defining trait of our species, universal to human beings and unique to human minds. Now, the claim that music is universal is not controversial. No anthropologist would dispute that. Every culture that's ever been discovered, down to the smallest tribes in the jungles of the Amazon, has some form of music. Even if they don't make instruments, they will still sing. However, the claim that music is unique to humans might seem odd. After all, you certainly don't have to be human to sing. Many birds are very fine singers. So the claim that we're the only musical species may seem a bit odd. This meadowlark is a very nice singer. This is what it sounds like. Okay, so how is human music any different from this? Well, it's different in a number of important ways. First of all, Birds sing at a certain time of year in specific contexts, triggered by neural and hormonal changes. Humans seem to be able to make and appreciate music in a wide variety of contexts, from the formalities of the concert hall to the privacy of the shower. (laughs) Typically, only male birds sing, and they do that around the time of sexual maturity. Humans start to enjoy music at a very young age. Both boys and girls like music, 
They develop into men and women who enjoy music and who seem to be equally good at it. Bird singing has a rather narrow biological function, that is, defending a territory or looking to attract a mate. Human music has a seemingly endless number of functions. Um, there's church music, there's wedding music, there's party music, and we could, the list goes on. Just one example is lullabies, music used to soothe infants. No other animal uses music in this way. And there are plenty of other things we do with music that no other animals do. And finally, bird singing, although beautiful, the amount of innovation in songs from one generation to the next in a given species of bird is rather limited. Human music, in contrast, can change dramatically over time. Think of the difference between Bach, B.B. Uh, King, and the Beach Boys. In fact, human musical innovation seems to know no bounds. My favorite example these days comes from a new orchestra in Vienna, that so musical city. This is a uh, member of the First Vienna Vegetable Orchestra <laughs> playing a cucophone. All the instruments in this orchestra are made from raw vegetables. This is the only orchestra that has a chef on its staff, which is totally cutting edge in my opinion. And this is what they sound like. You have some kitchen implements in addition to the vegetables. Well, you get the idea. Well, the fact that we constantly innovate musically shouldn't overshadow the fact that we have long been a musical species. Now, this is a bone flute, a flute made from the wing of a bone of a swan that was unearthed at an archaeological dig in Germany. And it's quite recognizably a flute. In fact, it's not that different looking from flutes made in some cultures today by people who don't have high technology. How old did you say, would you think this flute might be? 500 years old? 1,000 years old? This flute is 35,000 years old. At the time, the, pers- the last person who played this flute, for them, a traffic jam looked like this. <laughs> this is the late Pleistocene era. So, music is universal in human societies, it's unique to human minds, and it's been with us a very long time. This has led some people to wonder if perhaps humans have been shaped by evolution to be musical. Well, some people actually think so, or thought, have thought so, including Charles Darwin. But other people have had other opinions, and this is a debate that continues today. Now, an important aspect of uh, Human music is its diversity, which is evident just from instruments that you see around the world. For example, guitars have a very particular way of dividing up pitches or spacing pitches according to Western musical theory, which dates back to Pythagoras. This uh, Thai xylophone, or Renat, has a very different system for spacing pitches and doesn't follow those Pythagorean theories. So there's different differences in different cultures. But there are also commonalities. For example, the very fact that pitch is organized into discrete steps seems to happen in every musical culture. In our own Western culture, we see this on the piano, which divides each octave or doubling of pitch, for example, between C and C, into 12 distinct notes, and uses seven of those at any given time, for example, just the white keys, uh, to play melodies. So, for example, if you're playing in one key, you might just play the white keys. If you're playing in another key, I'm sorry, key is a little ambiguous, musical key and a key on a piano. So... um, 
if uh, other musical keys might use five white piano keys and two black keys and so forth. Well, as listeners, even if we have no formal training in music, we develop a sensitivity to the rules that our culture uses to combine pitches into melodies. I can illustrate that through some sound examples. I'm going to play a simple little melody that follows the conventions of Western music. Simple. I'm going to play another one. This is the same melody with one note changed. I think it'll be very obvious to you what note that is. For most people, that really kind of pops out. That was sort of a sour note. But what was that sour note? Well, that sour note was just one of the black keys on the piano. That was, a, that was being played in a key that was all supposed to be white keys. Now, that, that poor little sour note never did nothing to nobody. It's just a black key on a piano. And in another musical key, it would sound perfectly great. But it just doesn't belong, and you somehow know that implicitly. We can also see that with musical chords. This is a very prototypical chord sequence in Western music. And this is the same chord sequence, but with a chord taken from another key at some point. I think it'll be obvious to you. Okay. So, now what happened in that last example? Well, I was playing along in a particular musical key, as shown in this music-theoretic map of musical keys called the Circle of Fifths. I was playing in the key of E. And then that last chord came from the key of F. Now, if you play that chord by itself, very nice, perfectly normal-sounding chord. But in the context that it was happened in, it sounded really out of place. So our implicit knowledge of these kinds of principles of music form a kind of grammar, a knowledge of the rules of how sequences are made. Sour notes and chords are just a simple example of that, but actually musical grammar is is complex and rich, and it has its own principles, which differ depending on the culture you're in. And just as with language, this grammar has to be learned. The evidence for that is that infants don't seem to be sensitive to it, and sensitivity develops as infants grow into children. Now let me talk briefly about some musical components in the brain. Neuroscience has learned a lot about the human brain from studying disorders following brain damage. And this has been an important strategy in the study of language. Now, how many of you here know about a disorder called aphasia? Okay, quite a few of you. Aphasia is a disorder of language that follows brain damage. It's a central disorder of understanding words or putting words together to make sentences. It's not due to a problem with hearing. It's not a lack of intelligence. It is not problems with controlling the structures of speech. It's a central problem with understanding words or putting them together, whether they're spoken or written or what have you. And we've learned a lot about language by studying aphasia and seeing what parts of the brains are responsible, uh, what parts of the brains when damage lead to aphasia. Well, there's a parallel disorder of music, which is much less common, but which has been important for our understanding of music in the brain. This is called amusia, kind of a parallel to aphasia, which is the loss of musical abilities following brain damage, though the person otherwise seems okay. Now, usually when I describe amusia in those terms, I see somebody in the audience turning to their spouse and saying, Honey, that's what you have. (laughs) But you probably don't have it. Lots of people call themselves amusic or tone deaf, but what they usually refer to is the fact that they can't sing or they don't sing well. But that's not amusia. There are plenty of people who can't carry a tune in a paper bag, but who have a very good ear for music and love music. If you're really amusic, you'd have problems with very fundamental perceptual things that are quite easy for most of us who've grown up listening to music. For example, telling if two melodies are the same or different, or recognizing what should be very familiar tunes, like your own national anthem, or spotting those sour notes. 
even though you used to be able to. So it's, and it's not a hearing problem. This is not deafness. So my colleague Isabel Peretz in Montreal has been a pioneer in the study of amusia, and she's shown that when music breaks down after brain damage, it doesn't just break down as a whole. There are different components that can be damaged. For example, you can have problems with just melody uh, perception or production, or just with rhythm perception or production, or with some subset within those categories, or with emotional response. You no longer have any feelings in response to music. Well, this is... Um, and it turns out that damage to a number of different regions of the cerebral cortex can lead to musical disorders. The auditory areas, of course, but also areas in the front of the brain or in the parietal regions. And this has taught us that there is no single music center in the brain. The involvement of diverse brain regions in music has been confirmed by brain imaging, which shows that numerous areas outside of auditory areas are involved when people process music. This is an image from my colleague Stefan Kolsch at the Max Planck in Leipzig, showing brain areas that were activated outside of auditory areas when people process musical harmony. You can see structures in the, uh, those red spots in the front of the brain, the back of the brain, in the auditory, um, excuse me, um, in the temporal regions, and on both sides of the brain, importantly, showing that music is not just a right brain thing. Well, okay, let me go on to our two main questions for today. The first one is, what can music teach us about the brain? And the second is, what can brain science teach us about music? They're complementary. I'll spend the first part of the remainder of the talk talking about the first question and then switch to the second question. So, what can music teach us about the brain? Well, today I want to focus on a particular aspect of music that I think can help illuminate broader questions in human cognitive neuroscience, and this is its relationship to language. Now, language is one of our signature abilities as a species. Professor Elman had talked about that. It also presents a challenge to brain science, though. That's because many of its components have no parallel in the animal world, like the use of a large vocabulary or a complex grammar. Now, that means that neuroscience doesn't have what's called an animal model for language, and that makes it tricky to study. We can't use animals to study language in the way, say, we've used them to study the visual system, where we've learned a tremendous amount about how our visual system works by studying monkeys because their visual system is just not that different from ours. So if we can't compare language processing to what happens in the minds of other animals, what can we compare language to in order to get some insight into how it works? Well, how about music? Music and language both build complex and meaningful structures and sequences by combining basic units according to rules. That is, both have a grammar Though the principles of the grammar are rather different. Music doesn't have nouns and verbs, or their equivalents, but language doesn't have scales, chords, and keys. So one question I've been asking in my work is, does the brain use some of the same circuits to process the grammar of music and language? And if so, what can we learn from that? How can we use that to explore the grammatical abilities that we have, that our species has? Now, focusing on instrumental music, not vocal music, because here I think the connections to language are less obvious and in some ways more interesting for that reason. Now, when I started to think about these questions in the 1990s, the evidence seemed to point to the separation of music and language in the brain. What was the evidence for that? Well, first, there were these cases of amusia without a concomitant language disorder, amusia without aphasia, music and language separate in the brain. And the reverse was also observed, aphasia without amusia, people who have profound language, central language problems but continue to be musical. The most famous case of that 
is a Russian composer who you may not have heard of, uh, Shebelin, who uh, is actually quite famous among music neuroscientists because he, scuff- he suffered a couple of strokes which left him very aphasic, unable to communicate or understand words. But he continued to compose and actually produced pieces that were admired by his contemporaries, including Shostakovich. Well, this double dissociation, so-called double dissociation between aphasia and amusia, had led people to make some strong claims. For example, these cases of total dissociation are of particular interest because they decisively contradict the hypothesis that language and music share common neural substrates. But I wondered if this really was the final word and decided to take a new look at this issue using the modern tools of neuroscience. In the late 1990s, our lab was the first to use brain imaging to compare the processing of musical and linguistic structure in people without brain damage. We took advantage of the fact that brain responses to grammatical and semantic anomalies in language seem to be quite different if you measure these brain responses with brain waves. What do I mean by grammatical and semantic anomalies? Well, consider the, the two sentences you see on the screen. The woman paid the baker and take the bread home. There's a grammatical error in there. The word take doesn't agree. And you know that as a native speaker of English. What about the second sentence? The woman paid the baker and took the zebra home. That's a perfectly grammatical sentence, but given your knowledge of the world and the kinds of things that bakers tend to have in their shops, usually not large African ungulates, um, leads you to realize that's a little strange. And the brain responses to those two kinds of anomalies are rather qualitatively different. You get a negative going brain wave in one case called the N400 for the semantic anomaly and a positive going one for the other called the P600 because it peaks around 600 milliseconds after the onset of the word. The details aren't particularly important, but those of you who do like to read EEGs, I've put slides of the P600 and N400 on the bottom there. Well, so the brain seems to have this fundamental distinction between grammar and semantics, and both of these responses are distinct from the kind of generic oddball response the brain gives off when it gets something unexpected, like a high tone at the end of a bunch of low tones. So what we did was we compared the brain's response to grammatical anomalies in language and music, using anomalies like that for language, and using uh, out-of-key chords as our musical grammatical anomalies. And what we got was a big surprise. The brain responses were practically indistinguishable for the grammatical anomalies to language and music, suggesting there was some overlap in the processing of these two kinds of grammar. Subsequent work in other laboratories has gone on to confirm that linguistic and musical uh, grammar seem to overlap in normal brains. For example, a number of studies have looked at the processing of musical harmony and have found activation in the area of the brain known as Broca's area, shown in these uh, different MEG. uh, There's a slide from an MEG, or magnetoencephalography study on the left, from an MRI, fMRI study on the right, and the anatomical location of Broca's area is shown in the bottom slide. So, Knowing this now, that music seems to be activating language functions and language areas, we felt it was important to go back to this question of dissociations between music and language and brain damage. In particular, music processing and aphasia. Aphasia is a lot easier to study than amusia because there's just a lot more aphasics out there. And we wanted to look at this question of aphasia without amusia. And we looked at the literature and looked at all the cases that have been reported, and they had something very interesting in common. They were all professional musicians. Not only that, most of them were conductors or composers, people of the highest musical training. Why is that important? Well, it's important because there's evidence that musical training changes the brain, changes the structure of the brain. We know this from a number of studies now. This is a slide from 
my colleague Gottfried Schlaug's lab in Boston. Now, this is not an fMRI slide. These are not hot spots that are activated because of activity. These red areas are areas where professional musicians have more gray matter, a greater density of gray matter than do non-musicians after spending a lifetime being musical. Now, some of those areas are in auditory and motor regions, which makes sense. Playing an instrument takes auditory and motor skills, but some of those areas are in frontal regions of the brain as well, like here areas that are thought to be involved in higher cognitive functions. So I don't think we can generalize from these few cases of professional musicians to the rest of us. So how much do we know about music and aphasia in people who aren't professional musicians? What do we really know? Well, the short answer is we know very little right now. We stand to learn a lot. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how little we know, if you type music and aphasia into Google, you get a page full of hits. Every single one of those hits is to a rock band named Aphasia. (laughs) Now, I listened to their music. I kind of even liked it, but it wasn't giving me the kinds of insights that I was looking for. So I decided we had to go a little further. The question I wanted to ask was, do aphasics who have problems understanding language grammar also have problems with musical grammar? Well, to test this, uh, in collaboration with Peter Hagort and Marlies Fassenaar in the Netherlands, we looked at 12 brokers aphasics who had problems understanding language grammar that had been established by standard tests that linguists give aphasics. And the first thing we did was we made sure these aphasics didn't have low-level musical processing problems. We tested them on their ability to, say, discriminate if two melodies were the same or different. And they did fine, just as well as people who are not aphasic. So they're not in music in that sense. They don't have low-level pitch perception problems. And we gave them a test of both language and musical stimuli. The linguistic items were sentences. They could be normal sentences. The woman paid the baker and took the bread home. Or they could have a grammatical error of the kind that we've seen before, or a semantic anomaly of the kind we've seen before. And they just had to listen to one sentence at a time and tell us if it sounded normal, if there was something strange about it, something anomalous. Similarly, we gave them a musical test where they listened to one chord sequence at a time. And at some critical point in that chord sequence, there would be a chord that either was within the key or came from a rather distant key. And again, the task was listen to one at a time and please tell us, do all these chords seem to fit together in a musical sense or is there something that stands out as odd? Well, what do we find? Was musical grammar impaired in these aphasics? And the answer was an unequivocal yes. Aphasics did worse than the controls on this musical grammatical task just as they did worse on the language grammar task. But they also did worse than the controls on the semantic task, which raised the question of how specific the relationship really is between musical grammar and language grammar, as opposed to language semantics, the meaning side of language. One way to study that is to look at the relationship in individuals, to see if people who are individuals who are bad at the language uh, grammar task are bad at the music grammar task, and if they do better on language grammar, if they do better on music grammar, and the same question for the semantics. And when we looked at it in this way, what's called correlation, we found that the severity of the musical and the linguistic grammar deficit were correlated. That's shown in this slide where the black shows the aphasics once again and the gray shows the controls. So the better you do on the musical grammar task, the better you're doing on the language grammar task. And that's a significant, statistically significant correlation. On the other hand, when we looked at the semantic task, How well you did on the musical task wouldn't predict that much about how well you did on the semantic task, and those were not significant correlations. So it looks like there is some sort of specific relationship between musical grammar and linguistic grammar. 
So let's back up. What has music taught us about aphasia and the brain? Well, it seems that aphasics suffer from a general grammar processing deficit, which is not just linguistic. Well, what do you do with that information? Well, then the name of the game is to explore the nature of that deficit using both music and language to try and get at fundamentally what is wrong, what brain operation is not working. Well, what would be the significance of that? Well, I think the significance would be ultimately designing therapies that address the underlying processing deficit. If you want to fix something, you need to understand fundamentally what's wrong at the mechanistic level. Okay. So let's, ch- let's now turn to the second part of the talk, which is what can brain science teach us about music? Now, we've talked a lot about pitch and combinations of pitches and, and grammars of pitch and so forth. We, there's obviously a whole other side of music we haven't talked about. Um, that's rhythm. And rhythm is also one aspect of music that's found in every culture. Rhythmic traditions vary around the world, but they are there in every culture. And the variation is, in, is nicely encapsulated simply by the variation in instruments, once again, like the Western drum set or these Native American frame drums you see on the bottom left or these um, African, West African drums you see on the bottom right. And there's a lot of diversity in the principles by which musical rhythm is organized around the world. But there are commonalities as well. For example, a basic feature of musical rhythm are what's called periodic temporal patterns, patterns that repeat regularly in time. And the beat, or having a stable, steady beat, is a classic example of that. Now, from the standpoint of music performance, the function of a beat is very clear. It allows many performers to temporally coordinate their performance um, in a really precise way, as you'll hear in this example from Lewis Jordan. Okay. Well, I could listen to that all night. But um, in every culture, there's something else about the beat that's interesting, besides the coordination of performance. In every culture, the beat has an important link to movement. People move to music. They entrain their movements to music, to this periodic pulse that they, they hear, for example, in dance. But often it happens almost involuntarily, and I saw it happening right out there in this very audience, people nodding their head or tapping their foot to music. And so at first it might seem kind of... Uh, trivial. You know, it doesn't seem that demanding. It, mentally, it, we all kind of do it to some extent. But this seems to be a uniquely human behavior. No other species we know of seems to do this, which immediately suggests that perhaps it's more complicated than we at first thought. So let's take a closer look at the behavior. What are the characteristics of the behavior of moving to a beat? First of all, it's fundamentally anticipatory. When you move to a beat, you don't just react to beats. You don't wait for a beat and then move. You move in anticipation of a beat. And this is seen in simple studies like tapping to a metronome. People, when they ask or tap to a metronome, they actually tap a little bit ahead of the metronome to synchronize with it. They've got a mental interval of time in their minds that they're synchronizing with. Second, it's flexible. People are not little robots. If I asked you to clap or tap to that Lewis Jordan piece, some people would tap at half the rate of others or double the rate of others. There seem to be multiple time scales at which we can lock into music. And any individual can actually switch between those. Third, it's robust. Music can often have syncopation where there's an accent on a a non-beat location or where there should be a beat, there's nothing. And yet you can continue to sync. It's cross-modal, and this is very important. When you move to a beat, 
something you hear is making you do something mot motoric. You don't necessarily produce any sound, and this is very different from, say, frog chorusing. Frogs will sometimes synchronize in the jungle, as do other animals, in their calls, but they're all imitating each other doing the same kind of behavior. This is taking one modality and turning it into another. And finally, it does seem to be something special about the auditory system, although with deaf people, sometimes they get it through vibrations, but it seems to have some special relationship to hearing. We've studied that at the Neurosciences Institute, and John Everson and I have, have, have looked at this by making patterns that are complex rhythms, and we present them as either auditory patterns and have people tap to the beat, which people find very easy, or we present them as visual patterns. So we take exactly the same temporal pattern and we turn it into flashes of light. So instead of each tone, you, hear a, you see a flash of light. So you're getting exactly the same temporal information, but through your eyes instead of through your ears. And we ask people to tap to the beat of those things, and people are hopeless. They just cannot sync on. Sometimes they think they're synchronized, but you go back and look at the data, no relationship to the structure. So, something closer examination reveals that something that seems simple is actually quite complex. And that happens so often in science, one of the wonderful aspects of science. Well, why does music have this power over movement? Can brain science help us answer that question? Well, apart from its purely scientific interest, answering that question may actually have some practical benefits. Because it turns out that for people with certain types of motor disorders, including Parkinson's disease, having a regular beat actually helps them walk. But we don't know why. Well, to get a first handle on this, um, a colleague in England has been recently using brain imaging to find out what brain structures keep a beat. And she had people listen to complex rhythms that either did or did not have a beat and looked for areas that specifically responded strongly when rhythms had a beat. Now, importantly, she made sure people were not moving. So this is just a perceptual study. Well, what did she find? Well, these are slices through the brain sort of midway down, as if you're looking from the top now. And she found some auditory areas, uh, superior temporal gyrus, shown here, these hot spots. She also found some frontal regions of the brain, these higher cognitive regions. That was interesting. But the most interesting was this deep brain structure, the putamen, which is part of a structure called the basal ganglia. Well, why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting because the structure, we know from neuroscientific studies of other animals that this, this structure can, can do different things, including time intervals, but also control sequences of movements. So perhaps we move to a beat because the same structure that's keeping the beat is also, in some sense, a motor structure. In the 1800s, Nietzsche remarked that we listen to music with our muscles. And maybe there's more truth to this than even he could have imagined. But if this is the explanation, then why do only humans move to a beat? Uh, the basal ganglia have these functions in many other animals, including rats. And yet, when we crank our stereos, we don't hear rats dancing in the attic, and, at least in my house, maybe in Disney films. I was recently discussing this curious uniqueness of human movement to a beat with a colleague, and he said to me, have you seen this video? Well, now I'm going to show you the video he was talking about, and you can let me know what you think. Now, I should say that this is taken from a wonderful new film that I recommend to all of you called The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. This is about a man in San Francisco who takes care of parrots who live wild in that city. Sometimes he lets the parrots into his house, and this is one of those parrots. Hey, Mingus. Want to dance? Well, I 
got me a roof and I got me some clothes and I eat real good, man, I overdose. When it gets dark, you know, I turn on the light. Put on my shades when the sun's too bright. Every comfort for every climb. I still can't get me no peace of mind. Was that parrot moving to the beat? Was he? What do you think? Okay, let's take a vote. How many say yes? How many say no? Oh, I love it. I love it. Science is about disagreeing about things you can measure. It really is. So I'm not sure he was synchronized with the beat. John, my colleague at NSI, who's a drummer, thinks he is. So I think it's worth finding out, particularly because uh, this is not an isolated case. I've started to hear this from other people now about how their parrots move to music. So I'm actually looking for a San Diego parrot that moves to music. If any of you know one or know of somebody who knows one, please get in touch with me. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that parrots can entrain to a musical beat. If so, what does this mean? Okay. Uh, I should say right now that things are going to get a bit more speculative than they have up to this point, but it's okay. I've shown you a dancing parrot at this point. <laughs> I think anything goes. So... Humans and parrots are rather distantly related, as you can imagine, but it turns out we have something very important in common, something, oh, that was Mingus, something known as vocal learning. What is vocal learning? Vocal learning is simply learning to produce complex sound patterns based on what you hear. Now, this, we all do this when we learn to talk. This doesn't seem like any big deal. But when we look across, in a cross-species, an evolutionary perspective, we see it's actually evolved only a few times in the animal world among a few species of birds, the songbirds, the hummingbirds, and the parrots, and a few species of mammals, ourselves, some cetaceans, that's whales and dolphins, some bats, and some seals. And notably, among the primates, humans are the only species that has vocal learning. Our closest relatives, the chimps and the bonobos, uh, they pant and they hoot and they scream, but they don't seem to learn these things. So humans, in contrast, and birds have this remarkable ability to learn arbitrary sound sequences. My favorite example of this ability in birds also happens to come from a parrot. This is a parrot who belongs to Bruce Adolph, who some of you may know from the NPR radio show Piano Puzzlers. Well, Bruce loves opera, and so does his parrot. This is a recording that Bruce made of his parrot singing some Mozart. I'm going to start this off, and the first voice you'll hear is Bruce's parrot, whose name is Polly Rhythm, by the way. And you'll hear this parrot singing on throughout the aria.
Louis Adolph is a pianist and composer who lives in New York City. Thank you. If there was, if there's ever a Grammy Award for parrots, I am voting for that bird. <clears throat> now, from neurobiological research on birds, we know that vocal learning is associated with special brain circuits. And uh, the special brain circuits are shown in this slide, but it's a little hard to see when you put them to scale like this, so let's blow them up. These are some of the circuits in parrots, hummingbirds, and songbirds. And I've drawn a red arrow to one of the key structures in this circuit, and guess what? It's the basal ganglia, shown also in the humans with the red arrow. Well, this suggests that the basal ganglia have undergone some sort of evolutionary modification as part of vocal learning. And when you think about it, vocal learning demands a tight auditory feedback between hearing and vocal output. You've got to listen to yourself and constantly gauge if you're producing what you want to produce. In other words, between the auditory and the motor system. So this leads to an idea. Perhaps we move to the beat because a key brain structure involved in timing of beats, the basal ganglia, is also involved in motor control. And because of vocal learning, the same structure creates a strong connection between auditory input and motor output. Well... How do you test such an idea? Well, if you believe there's some link between vocal learning and keeping a beat, then the parrot example is nice positive evidence, but we need the opposite kind of evidence too. We need to show that animals that don't have vocal learning cannot learn to synchronize to a beat. Well, what would be a good animal to test? Well, how about chimps or bonobos? They share 98.4% of our DNA. They're highly intelligent. For example, the famous bonobo Kanzi has learned to recognize about a couple of hundred human words and interact with humans in a very intelligent way. However, they don't learn their vocalizations. And if this hypothesis is correct, I'm sorry, they don't, yeah, they don't learn their vocalizations and attempts to teach them to mimic human sounds, human speech, have really been an utter failure. So if this hypothesis is correct, then you'll never be able to, to teach them to move to a beat. I should add that if you're human and you're listening to this and you can't move to a beat, I don't think this means you should be in an enclosure in the San Diego Zoo. There are plenty of reasons probably why some people never learn that. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground from linguistic and musical grammar to comparative studies of rhythm in humans and other animals. So I'll just end by talking about what I think is the promise of music neuroscience. Because of the new tools that neuroscience is developing in our century, we actually have serious possibility for the first time to go from brain to mind. That is to understand the relationship between brain systems and complex cognition and behavior. And if you're interested in linking those things, I think music actually has many very attractive properties. First, as we've discussed, it engages many brain functions. In fact, it's hard to think of another domain that engages so many different brain functions. Take math, for example. Math is a wonderful domain to study. It uses imagery and pattern perception and so forth, but doesn't probably make that much use of motor control or emotion, except when you run screaming from your math test. <laughs> Second, music is complex, but it has the kind of complexity that can be broken up into little simpler bits, small and simple parts, which can be experimentally manipulated, rhythm, melody, harmony, timbre, and so forth. Third, music has grammar. It has principles for combinations, which is a key part of our mental life, and yet it doesn't have words, which makes it, simplifies the problem of studying music, say, compared to studying language. 
Because words are actually very complicated things, as any linguist will tell you, and understanding how they are represented in the brain is still a big uh, mystery in neuroscience. Fourth and finally, music lends itself to studies of learning. We can track changes in abilities and behaviors and relate that to changes in the brain with a level of detail and precision that was very hard to attain in other domains. So in conclusion, music is not just another problem for neuroscience to solve. It's actually an attractive system for solving the problem of how we go from gray matters to the colorful world of our own mental life. Thank you very much. Uh, the question is, are there studies showing that people who have problems with linguistic prosody, the melody and rhythm of speech, also have problems with rhythm? Actually, there, uh, we've done some studies looking at kind of the complement to that. People that have had um, brain damage that's affected their musical abilities, and we've tested them for their linguistic prosodic abilities, and the answer is yes, they do have difficulty. So there does seem to be a relationship between the melody and rhythm of speech and music, although speech doesn't have beats and that kind of rhythmic structure. Mm-hmm. Any idea why there are more people with aphasia than amusia? That's a great question. Well, I think there's two, two reasons. One of them is neuroanatomical. Um, selective amusia uh, is often associated with damage to both sides of the brain, which is a less common profile. Um, secondly, I think it's sociological. I think people who have some sort of uh, discovered that their music perception has changed might be shy about mentioning that to people like their doctor who might just say they might be worried about being accused of just being crazy or something. So uh, it may not be as uncommon as we actually think. Can we make a connection between why autistic children are so drawn to musical patterns? That's, the, the, the question of music and autism is fascinating. Some autistic people become very talented at music and, um, and, and actually have fantastic memorization abilities can remember long passages of music and sit down and just hear something and and then play it by ear. The mechanisms by which that happens are not really well understood, but one colleague actually has a very interesting idea about music, using music to help autistic people. One of the key problems of autism, as you know, is the social interactions with humans. Um, And music uh, can be quite a social endeavor if you play in groups because you have to interact, you have to kind of cooperate, you have to read people's cues, know when you're supposed to come in, when you're supposed to go out. And they've thought about possibly using music as a way to help autistic people regain some of these human social cue abilities, which I think is very interesting. The question was about a couple of books, Ezra Pound, and then, uh, sorry, what was the other one? Burkhoff? And then, mm-hmm. Aesthetic Sense. No, I haven't, I haven't seen those. I'd be interested in look at them. And the, the issue of control is interesting. Like you said, Sometimes you, you only achieve mastery when you relinquish control. That's, we know that from motor learning, that once you've automated it enough that you, you don't have to pay attention to every little motor detail. You can start to pay attention to the, the larger aesthetic issues, and that certainly happens in music as it does in any fine motor control skill. Yeah. Is there a correlation between age and interest in music? And interest in music seems to peak in the teens and 20s. Um, Actually, some sociologists in the UK have started to look at that, um, and partly it's because music seems to play a very important role in identity formation. When you're young and figuring out who you are, part of that is listening to the music that you identify with and seeking out your identity. That may be one reason when you get older you kind of have that figured out. Maybe you listen to less diverse stuff. Um, Well, what generates an emotion in you musically? so people often can agree that, say, a certain piece sounds sad or a certain piece sounds happy, but whether that makes them feel happy or sad is a very individual thing. So it's, studying emotion is tricky because we have to separate these levels of 
what we agree on as kind of looking at things from a distance and what we subjectively experience. I think the study I opened with about the chills is an interesting case because it, it exploited the fact that we're all different and we have differences in what sets us off, but used that to discover a commonality, which is this deep brain reward system. Oh, that's a really great question. So uh, the question is, is there a difference in um, the brains of children that are impacted by music early on and those that are not? Uh, this is, ties into the whole question of whether music has some collateral benefits for other cognitive functions, which is a, a topic that's gotten a lot of press. Um, I haven't studied that myself, but colleagues have. And actually, the most recent research, there's two lines. One is a, just behavioral studies where they've assigned kids to take music lessons versus some other extracurricular activity for a year and then tested them on broad-spectrum intelligence tests at the end of the year and found that music actually boosts IQ points across the board more than some of these other activities. The other line of research is a neural line of research and actually is, is taking kids around four or five five or six, as they start to learn a musical instrument and, and, and scanning their brain structurally and functionally as they acquire these skills over years and seeing how their brains change compared to people that do other kinds of activities, learning another language or learning a sport. So yeah, that's, that's a new and very exciting line of research, but it's, it's all very new. This whole field is very new. So some languages use tones to convey uh, distinctions between words. And so, in a sense, they're kind of intermediate between music and language. That's a really interesting question, and tone languages and their relationship to music have really not been studied very much. We do know that when people process... Uh, so if, if there have been brain imaging experiments where uh, they'll play tones, words that have different tones uh, to an English speaker to whom these things don't mean anything versus to, say, a Chinese or a Thai speaker to whom they differentiate the meanings, and that activates very different regions of the brain if it's a meaningful sound a lexically meaningful sound or not. But it's, I think tone languages are a wonderful area to explore this relationship because it blurs the line. Yeah. Well, head injuries changed your friend's response to music. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. But I, um, I don't think we understand how that happens very well because what we've been studying are primarily cases of strokes and how that changes music in the brain. And, Head injuries can often, the way they change the brain can be rather complicated. I have a friend who had a bad head injury after skateboarding, and now everything smells like gasoline to him. He used to work at a gas station, maybe that's why, but we don't really understand the mechanisms by which head injuries change these higher cognitive functions. I don't. I'm sorry. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.